Yes. We come to the letter R in our, uh, in our study, and uh, it's a lot easier to choose from than Q was <laughs> last week. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I'm thinking we could have gone redemption, reconciliation, of course, our reward, resurrection. Uh, there's a lot of places we could go. But, but the letter R, th those kinds of words we study a lot, and we, we think a lot about those. So I chose to go with the word race, as in the races in the world, because we don't often get to talk about that and even look at the genealogies and other things that have that, that explain where we've come from, why we have different races in the world. And so we're going to take a look at that today. And uh, uh, in a few minutes, we'll go all the way back to Genesis 9 and 10. So you can find your way back there. And because uh, this has become an important issue in our lifetime. Now, some object to the term uh, anyway when it comes to describing people groups in the world because it is true that generally we can say there's one human race. I mean, you know, in that sense, it's true. We're, we're all the human race. We're not animals. We're not angels. We're we're humans, and so we all have that image and likeness of God. So we're not discounting that. Of course that's true. The, the question beyond that is, can we use this term to describe uh, the different countries, nationalities, and so forth in different ways that we describe them with the word race? And of course, I think we can. I think we can obviously become oversensitive to the term race. And uh, even our racial differences, and sometimes uh, maybe I should say sometimes not sensitive enough, and we can offend people when we shouldn't, and sometimes too sensitive in that we take offense if where where we shouldn't. Some have made you know in our day and age the term race or racism has become sacrosanct, meaning it's almost a term that you you better be careful how you use, you know, because if you get accused of racism or something like that, uh, then, you know, uh, there's just no defense for you. So in those ways, it's become, uh, you know, you, you can curse the name of God uh, and be profane before you can become racist in any way in, in our world today. So we, so we have that issue to deal with, too. All right, so... What we're going to do first in thinking about this is uh, let me give you three what I would call biblical assumptions. I mean, the Bible just uh, says this is true, and we know that it is. And the first biblical assumption is that Adam and Eve were real, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm speaking to the choir here, but uh, we assume that in in biblical understanding, but the world doesn't assume that. And uh, the world might take the, our story in Genesis about Adam and Eve as mythology. As a matter of fact, uh, many do. And there are even Christians who don't believe that Genesis 1 through 11 should be taken literally, 
So they see all of the story of Adam and Eve, the flood of Noah, uh, all the way up to the Tower of Babel, for that matter, uh, as allegorical. It didn't really happen that way, but God inspired it that way into his Bible to kind of give us a story to hang on to, so to speak. But, we, but when we talk about where we came from and who we are, if the biblical account of Adam and Eve is not true, then where did we come from? What kind of creatures are we? Did we come out of the slime like every other creature in the world? And therefore, how are we made in the image of God? As a matter of fact, how did we fall into sin? And if Adam and Eve did not exist, where did sin come from? And when did it begin? And not only that, who was the first human being then? Was he kind of half animal, half man? You know, was he a combination of a bunch of different creatures? Uh, you know, and of course, the, the evolutionist side of this says, yeah, that's, that's true. But again, there is theistic evolution, too, that says that Adam and Eve may have not been real, but, uh, you know, God decided to do it through an evolutionary process. But then you have these problems. Where did sin come from? Where did the races come from? And, and since Jesus himself refers to Adam and Eve, what is he talking about if, if they weren't real? So we make this, we make this assumption and... and we don't, as I know in our church here and what our understanding of, of scriptures, have any problem with that. As a matter of fact, in our, we had a Bible study with some young couples last week, and this question always comes up, uh, you know, did God really do it that way or couldn't he have done it another way? And the answer to that goes back to things like, what do you do with the word day in Genesis 1, are those days 24 hours or are they longer periods of time? And, you know, we, of course, answer that, that, of course, they're 24 hours. They had an evening and a morning. Uh, God rested on the seventh day, and later when he instructed the Israelites to keep that seventh day, how long was that day? It was Saturday, a 24-hour day. I remember hearing a fellow you know, argue that he thought those days were a thousand years, you know, from an expression, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Which means, by the way, which means is nonsense unless a thousand years is a thousand years and a day is a day. Uh, you know, otherwise that expression is nonsense. But I asked him, I said, well, then how is it that, that uh, Adam was created on the sixth day, lived through the seventh day, and died at 930 years old, if the days were a thousand years each. The only way that even the, the life of Adam makes sense is in that sense. Okay, so since we believe that Adam and Eve were created as human beings, fully grown, without belly buttons, you know, uh, created by God's hand, God breathed into Adam's nostrils, a breath of life, and then, of course, created Eve from his side. Since we can believe that, then they were the only two human beings on the earth at a given time. And therefore, 
every other human being comes out of them. You know, there, are, there, there, is, a, there is a belief, too, even among some b- believers, that we evolve from lower species, but, but once human beings had been a, an evolved, then God chose two of them, and they represent. They were called Adam and Eve, and so there were other human beings on the earth. But God was using these two for His plans. But again, then we still have the problem of where sin came from, where death came from, and where we all came from, where the image of God comes from. So we can believe that we all came from Adam and Eve. They are our parents. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All sinned in Adam, actually. So, right, we're, uh, we come from, him, from them. So, when a conception takes place then, that soul that comes into being, really body, soul, and spirit at that moment, gets that life from Adam. In other words, the whole race was contained in Adam's seed. And when Adam sinned, the whole race sinned. We all sinned with Adam. And when we're born, we get our physical likeness that way. We also get our spiritual likeness that way. We get the image and likeness of God through that process of conception or birth. Uh, And so we get our humanness, we get our spirituality from it, we get our sinfulness from it. Uh, So God isn't, isn't creating anew every time someone is born. He does this through that birth process. We are, that's hard to understand, we are creatures of God but he's done it through this process, and that's why we're all sinners, because we were all there. Remember the expression in uh, Hebrews 7 about Levi being in the loins of Adam when he met Melchizedek. So we're, we're existing in Adam, all right? So that's the first biblical assumption. Second biblical assumption, and go to Genesis now in, in chapter 9. The second biblical assumption is that there was a universal flood in the world, and when that happened, Noah and his family were the only ones alive on the earth. Right? Everyone else died. I'm reading, uh, you know that I, I collect Harold Bell Wright books. I think I've told you this before. Harold Bell Wright wrote Shepherd of the Hills, and he was an Ozark uh, preacher and so forth back at the turn of the last century. And, and so uh, I found one the other day. I found uh, one that I didn't have. I, I've had 16 of 19 books. I have first editions, and I've read them all. And they're usually not good Christian stories, and Shepherd of the Hills was a story about a preacher down in the Ozarks and so forth. And so I found one, and these last three, the reason I don't have them is that in used bookstores, and other, they, the prices go like $400, $500 and up a book for a first edition. And so it sounds terrible that I paid $85 for, for an old book, but sometimes a guy doesn't know what he's got. <laughs> 
And so I, so I found one a couple weeks ago in an antique store and, and uh, bought it. So I'm reading it, and it's called Long Ago Told. And now I'm disappointed with old Harold Bell Wright because he, he moved out west and he spent his last days in Arizona and those places. And so he, he spent it with a lot of uh, uh, Indian people and tribes and has a lot of good things to say about them, and that's good. But, but he's kind of adopted in, this, in his later writings, adopted their philosophy of where we all came from. <laughs> And interestingly, in the old Indian stories, there, there are stories about a universal flood on the earth. Isn't that interesting? In the old Indian stories. But their story is more kind of fantastic. Noah was just one group that lived through the flood. There were others that were rescued by miraculous means and different things. And so, you know, they don't have to necessarily believe they came through Noah. But what does our Bible tell us uh, in Genesis? Of course, everything died except Noah's family. Now, Noah and three sons, of course, but then they came from out, of, out of Noah, so we've all come out of Noah. So not only did we come out of Adam, but we came out of Adam through Noah and his wife. So we're, we can trace our racial background back to that point, which is much sooner. Now, uh, just by footnote here, uh, you know, as creationists and early earth creationists, we put creation somewhere between 4 B.C. and maybe 10. If you're one of those that takes it, the genealogies very, in a very lax way, you might go as old as 10,000 years old. Uh, but if you take the genealogies in the Bible absolutely strictly, and I think that there is some room for, you know, the word begat meaning a little more than father-son. Sometimes we know it means grandfather, so-and-so begat so-and-so. So, you know, maybe a little more. But if you, if you have it like if you have an old Schofield Bible and you, you have, you're looking at Genesis here, mine doesn't have the dates in it, but, uh, but uh, they would have 404 B.C. above Genesis 1. You know, Bishop Usher did that genealogy. By the way, if you, if you go into Walmart on the 400 uh, anniversary, 450th anniversary of the King James Version, Walmart was selling original edition, not, not of course original, but reprints of the original King James Version for $8.50. A nice big thick thing like this and kind of pretty and all. And, and one of the things they put in it when they reprinted it for sale was the original genealogy that, that they had. And it is amazing. The, the, the chart of genealogies goes like 25 pages with every name in the Bible in that genealogy. It's worth the $8.50 just for the genealogy. So if you see that on Walmart's crazy bookshelf that they have back there because they have a lot of crazy stuff on it uh buy one for eight bucks i mean it's well worth it so i bought all they had last time i went out, so i still have a couple extra no you can't have them i yeah i've given a few away so um where was i going with that i don't know i'm getting a little senile in my old age that the genealogy that we that we trace from noah 
has to go back to that point, and, and if, you, if we go back to Adam, we're at least at 4,000 B.C. and maybe prior to that. But, but the flood is in either the late 20s or around, if we said 3,000 B.C., we would be in the, in the ballpark pretty close. That, I mean, that seems incredible, doesn't it, that we're saying that, that in, let's say, 2800 B.C., there, were, there was only one family alive on the earth? Now, when we start talking like this, the evolutionists have already gone berserk. I mean, they just, you know, as a matter of fact, if, if we even say that the age of the earth is between 4,000 and 10,000 years old, they've already gone berserk. That, that isn't enough time in evolution to cough, much less have a whole race of people. But, but there is, and so, and so basically the Bible pictures the, the peoples of the earth and the population of the earth becoming what it is uh, in, uh, you know, 4,000 years uh, rather than, mil you know, millions or, or more years. So how can this take place? Because this is the way God did it. And uh, you see the population explosion now. When you think about it, it's not hard to believe that the populations could expand that much. As a matter of fact, some, some estimate that, that most of the people that have ever lived are alive right now. Because of the, pop, gen, the, the present population of the earth, more people are living and alive right now than have lived and died in history. And that would be certainly true if the, biblical, if the Bible's picture of where we all came from is true, which I believe it is. Okay, so uh, we're starting over with Adam, and we can go to that genealogy in Genesis 10 and actually see the beginning of all the races, as we call them, or at least the division, the major divisions of the races and the continents. We don't have to even go back to the early genealogies in chapter 5 and so forth, because we're going to start over again <coughs> with Noah. All right? Um, Let me drop down in the, to the third biblical assumption. So we, we're talking about those. Uh, <clears throat> no, no, I don't want to go that far yet. I want to stay with, stay with Genesis uh, a little bit here. And uh, <clears throat> chapter 9 and verse 18, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, or Japheth. All right? So we have Noah, we have four sons, and uh, so you have eight people alive on the ark because their, their wives were also with them. So these are the three sons of Noah. <clears throat> of them was the whole earth overspread. Pretty clear from Scripture. And then you have a little, uh, some details about what happened in the, at, to uh, Noah and especially to Ham and Canaan. There was a curse there. I won't get into that. But uh, Ham uh, sinned before his father when his father was drunk. We're not exactly, there, there's some speculation about what happened there. But Canaan especially was cursed because of that. And later when God brings the Israelites into the land of Canaan and commands them to wipe out the Canaanites, 
part of that reason for his taking vengeance upon them can go back to this time when they were uh, cursed of God for Ham's sin. But anyway, um, in verse 29 it says, Noah at that time was 950 years old when he died. So uh, he, we find that they were living a long time, but still uh, uh, the, the genealogies can be connected. If you, you can get these charts, you know, that connect the age of Noah and the age of Methuselah and, and uh, uh, Adam and so forth, all right? Now, um, these three sons then we find in chapter 10 and their genealogy. So uh, in if you're looking at chapter 10, verse 2 says the sons of Japheth, and, and now you have the, the people listed the sons. It's interesting that out of chapter 10, uh, let me, well, let me point out these three names. Then in verse 6, you have the sons of Ham. Then in verse uh, 21, actually 22, the children of Shem. So the three sons of Noah, all their descendants and where they went are all pictured here. And uh, Genesis here describes 70 nations that came out of these three people, these three men. And 70 becomes a unique number in the Scripture because of this. Uh, some believe, for example, that when Jesus, remember, he selected 12 disciples, but then not long after that, he took 70 disciples and sent them out preaching. And the 70 came back. And the, whereas the 12 were not allowed to go to the Samaritans, the 70 were allowed to go to the Samaritans, in other words, to the Gentiles. And there is a common belief that there were, besides Israel, that there were 70 Gentile nations. And so when they referred to the Gentiles, they often referred to them as the 70. We have a translation of the Bible done by the Gentiles in 200 and almost 50 B.C., called the Septuagint, which is the word for 70. And, we, and when you see an abbreviation for the Septuagint, it's LXX, 70. So it, because it was done in Alexandria and done by Gentiles, though it was a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it's called the Septuagint, the 70. So all of those kind of references go, go back to Genesis chapter 10, where 70 nations are delineated as coming out of uh, Japheth, then Ham, then Shem. Now, um, I think a, a good explanation of this is uh, Henry Morris's commentary on Genesis that I've, I've recommended to you before. As a matter of fact, when I've been preaching on Revelation, I've, re I've recommended uh, his view, uh, because Henry Morris, uh, along with uh, Whit uh, John Whitcomb, thank you, first wrote that book called The Genesis Flood back in the early 60s, and, and from there, for in the early 60s, it was Henry Morris and, and John Whitcomb that began what we call today the creation science 
viewpoint. And so uh, now we have Ken Ham and his organization that has come out of that and a lot of different science uh, organizations that are really doing good work at showing us what creation is, not just evolution. But it started back with Henry Morris, who's now with the Lord, and Whitcomb in the 60s, and a few men before that, but not many. So uh, he's got a great commentary on the book of Genesis called the Genesis Record, and so if you see Henry Morris on the Genesis Record, uh, take that. And so he... he first of all, dispels some old views that needed to be dispelled. For example, that black people came from the curse on ham and things like that. That th th There have been people who believe that kind of thing, but uh, it's just not so. Uh, and, and rather, that the nations took on the physical characteristics that they did because of the location where they went. And if, if, if for the last 4,000 years, if your ancestors have lived uh, in the suns, uh, under the sun of Africa and Ethiopia and so forth, your skin would be darker too. And, and yet if your ancestors lived in the North Pole, you'd, be, you'd have lighter skin too. And so we have variations in the way we look, the color of our skin, and obviously the languages, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, because of location, because these nations went in these areas. So he points out, for example, that Japheth's people, uh, mentioned first here, went north. Gomer is more in the land of Germany, uh, uh, and Tarshish, and so forth. Uh, Meshach and Tubal, these are, the, these are places that are described as the king of the north in prophecy. When Russia and other countries come down from the north, they're described with these names. So he describes them as light-skinned, cold-blooded, fair-haired. And there are 14 nations that came out of Japheth. Then Ham went south. And so 30 nations come out of Ham. And these are nations, of course, more in, in the south, Cush, uh, Ethiopia, lands like that. So more dark-skinned, warm-blooded, and so forth. Then Shem went east in uh, verse 21-22. And 26 nations come out of Shem, uh, and darker hair, lighter skin, sometimes we say yellow, uh, to the pigment of it. Then, you know, I have also seen that Ken Ham, who now is doing great work, he's the one with the uh, uh, Creation Museum and so forth in Kentucky. He has a chart on the different pigments of the skin and how, how uh, within two to three generations, the pigment of skin through, through uh, interracial marriage, the skin can, can change totally uh, within two to three generations. It's kind of amazing. So he's got charts on how the combinations would work and, and so forth, all right? So uh, then we come to, to the third biblical assumption. I need to hurry on here, and that is uh, that there was a Tower of Babel where the languages were divided. And when that happened, uh, remember that all of these people were together for a while, and they came into the land of Shinar, and they decided to build there a, uh, uh, if, if you go to chapter uh, 12, a land, 
I'm sorry, not chapter 12. Let me go back. Um, uh, chapter 11 and verse 2. You see them in the land of Shinar, and they're all together, and they haven't spread out. And so God, that is not God's purpose for the earth. How are they going to repopulate the earth, or just populate it, I should say? By the way, the old word replenish in Genesis 1, be multiply, multiply, be fruitful, replenish the earth, is, is uh, a little bit of a reading into that word. It literally means fill up the earth. So it doesn't mean refill as if it had been filled once before and then there was a f something happened then and now it needs to be refilled like in a gap theory type of thing. But rather, fill the earth up. And so that's the command of God to go fill the earth up and yet they're all in the land of Shinar. How are they going to fill the earth? And so God doesn't want them, God wants them spread out for the population of, and preservation of the earth and that we're supposed to have dominion over all of the earth. And they're not doing it. And not only that, but, but we find out when people congregate together like this, that they encourage one another in their own sins. <laughs> and so they're going to build a, a tower, and they're going to worship the stars, the host of heavens, and, and all of that. And so you know that the, the whole story of the, of the Tower of Babel uh, that goes on here. And... But look at chapter 10, verse 25. As you go down through the genealogies of Shem, well, I should say, too, right at the end of verse 24, you have a man named Eber. And one pretty credible view is that that is where Eberites or the Hebrews came from, the Hebrews. And it could be that Hebrew comes from that word Eber, and it's a pretty credible view. We do know, of course, that the Jewish people are sons of Shem, right? Oriental people. And that's probably the ancestor that they later called Hebrew. But then it says, unto Hebrew were, bo Hebrew were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. And notice, for in his days was the earth divided, which means at Babel. And, and so if, when you go over to chapter 11 and down to verse 16, it says, Eber lived four and thirty years and begat Peleg. And so you have Peleg in the genealogy at the right place about where the Tower of Babel would be. So the Tower of Babel happened only a few generations after the flood. They're all here in the land of Shinar. Here are the children of Noah, but they're not spreading out. And so God then uh, is going to confuse the language so that they have to leave and go settle together somewhere. Now, there's also a view, by the way, and uh, I know Henry Morris explores this, but I'm not a scientist, so I don't, but that, but that God, after the flood, when, he, when the waters came back and the continents were formed, that God expanded the earth and separated the continents with the oceans. I don't know, because I'm not a, uh, a geologist like M Morris was and so forth, but the idea would be, you know, you can see on a world globe that the continents look like they might fit together like a puzzle and that, and that the land was pushed back this way and the mountains were formed as the land cracked up like this. And there are places where in the mountains, I know like in Colorado, where you have those obvious break up where the, the side of the hill goes up like this and you have fossils on one side and no fossils on the other, for example. 
and so forth. So, you know, uh, Christian, I, I always hate to say Christian scientists. I don't mean the religion. I mean scientists who are Christian, you know, explore those kinds of things. So anyway, all of it shows an early earth, and all of it shows, too, that there may have been a physical division of the earth as well as a linguistic division of the earth. That's all I'm saying. We'll let them explore that. But um, obviously God did uh, confuse the languages, and so these people go into all the different parts of the earth, okay? And so by the time we get to, to Noah, or, uh, Abraham's day in chapter 12, all of this is done. The nations are spread out. There are 70 Gentile nations, and they're growing, and uh, the world is being populated, as God said, and you and I come from one of those. Uh, somewhere in there, we could find our genealogy if you just knew what it was. What did your dad used to always say, honey, that uh, he came from, uh, yeah, he, he was a real pagan. He was a Scythian. He was Ukrainian, you know, so he, he said, I'm Scythian, or whatever that means, you know, and, and uh, if you can find your genealogy back there somewhere, uh, you're there somewhere. All right, now, uh, with the uh, only five minutes or so that I have left, let me make some present applications from this real quickly. Number one, Abraham and Jesus were Jewish. They, Abraham comes from Shem's genealogy in chapter 12 here, so he was Jewish, and of course, Jesus was Jewish, and it doesn't do us any good to, for, for other genealogies to try to claim Jesus. Jesus belongs to us all. We understand that. He died for the whole world. He's, he's our, all of our Savior, but the fact is he's Jewish, and uh, he's a Jewish Messiah, and there will be a Jewish king, and so forth. Secondly, interracial marriage was never forbidden except for the time that the Jews were under their law. So it was never forbidden before it. It's not forbidden after it. And as a matter of fact, uh, the, we're told in Ezekiel 16, that, uh, as God's talking to Abraham, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And that's, what, that's where Abraham came from. And then we find in Numbers 12, when Moses, before the law was given, that Moses married an Ethiopian woman, remember, and Miriam and, uh, didn't like it, but he did. Now, the law wasn't given. Now, for a while then, God, uh, and the third thing here is, that God isolated Israel, both culturally and racially, to preserve his people for what he wanted them to do. So they could not marry outside. Uh, they couldn't marry unbelievers. In other words, the Jews were God's people, and they, and they couldn't do that unless those people became proselytes and so forth. So, so those restrictions were put upon Israel. But you didn't have them before the law. You don't have them after the law. Now, the, for the church, for those of us who live in the church age, the line for marrying is saved and lost. You don't marry, uh, you as a believer do not marry someone who's not a believer. That is the restriction given to us. There are not restrictions given on interracial marriages. So throughout our history, there have been various prejudices about that. There have even been some, some theologies written about that that I think are off base myself. But the fact that we're all lost means that we can all be saved 
And since the only restriction is to marry within the faith, anyone in the world can be saved, and you can marry someone who is a believer regardless of that race. Christian culture, then, is different. We have a Christian culture, which means we create our own culture within our church, within our faith, and so forth, and wherever you are in the world and whatever nationality you belong to, you're still Christian above everything else, all right? Uh, there are no superior races. Adolf Hitler thought he, he was one. Uh, uh, Acts 17 on Mars Hill uh, is where God, or Paul, I mean, kind of shoots down the Greek view of that. God made of one blood all nations. Sorry, you Aryans, you're not superior to anyone else, Paul's saying to the to the Greeks there. So Hitler, of course, came up with that theory, and that's why then he became a murderer. Everyone else could be killed because their uh, seed, of course, is not worthy to live if you're not Aryan. Uh, so, you know, there have been those kind of views. Isn't it interesting that in history, if you want to wipe out a people, you relegate them to, to non-human so the Jews were non-human to Hitler. They were as bad as an animal. So you can kill an animal, no problem. You could kill a Jew, no problem. We have relegated the unborn to non-human status. And so in our country, we're killing the non-born as if they were animals or less, and not even thinking about it, because we've relegated them to a non-human status. That should never be done, of course. Now, uh, uh, Acts 2, we have all of these nations, 18 different nations at Pentecost. They get to hear something as the world was before the Tower of Babel. They get to hear in one language, uh, you know, in all of their different dialects, they're hearing everything from one language. In Acts 10, Peter sees a vision of a big sheet let down from heaven with all kinds of what to the Jew would be unclean animals. And God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, not so, Lord, I've never, I've never eaten anything unclean. He says, you're going to today. <laughs> so kill and eat. And then Peter later, when he realizes he's supposed to go preach to these Gentiles in Cornelius's house, in the sermon he says, God showed me that I'm not supposed to respect any one nation above another. Or God, Jesus died for them all. All right. Now, uh, quickly also, sometimes race means nationality, and I think that's fine. I think if we use a, the word race and we mean nationality, uh, Chinese, American, uh, you know, whatever, I, I think that's fine. Uh, Paul said, I'm debtor to the Jew and to the Gentile, the free and, the, uh, and so forth. Uh, so if I refuse a brother of Christ because he's of a different nationality or race, I'm really wrong to do that. Sometimes, though, today we refer to race as culture or culture as race, and I don't think we should do that just because you have a different culture. Uh, you know, that's, that's not a racial thing. Uh, so, in other words, um, well, an obvious example would be we, we rightfully in this country say 
you have to treat all people the same regardless of the color of their skin, okay, regardless of their nationality, where they came from. But now we're beginning to say, but culturally, I want to live as a homosexual, and you're supposed to treat me as if I were a nationality, right? So, so whereas in, in the early 60s we made a law, you, you, you cannot treat different people or people differently because of the color of their skin. Now we're saying in the same way you can't treat them different because of their culture. If they want to be a homosexual, you've got to treat them uh, as if they were a race of people. You understand what I'm saying? And so that's where we are today, and we have to be careful about it. So multiculturalism that we have today is simply an attempt to approve anything anybody wants to approve of. So it's not multiculturalism really doesn't mean accepting all the nationalities. What it really means is accepting everybody's culture no matter how they want to live and what they want to practice and what they want to do. Uh, so in, in that sense, we do not. And, you know, uh, we may recognize uh, American Indians, uh, Native Americans as we call them, but that doesn't mean I have to agree that they're ancestor worship and spiritism that they believed in, even uh, as uh, Harold Bell Wright describes it, you know, that that has to be an, accepted on an even par with Christianity. You know, uh, the, the race part of it does, but not the culture part of it. All right. Any more than European Druid worship, I have to accept because, because uh, you know, we accept Europeans too. All right, so Christian culture comes from a biblical view of human life and action and transcends any culture created by unsaved people or any race as well. Heaven will include all of us, and we find in Genesis 21 and 22 that all the nations are there, and we find that, that of the church of Jesus Christ, that we're saved out of all nations and cultures and races, and so we're glad that we are. Uh, the, the local church of the New Testament is the greatest interracial, multicultural group on this earth. That's why God has local churches, and he has them in every part of the world, so that when we become Christian, no matter what our background, no matter what our ancestry, we come into the body of Christ on equal footing. And we all are children of God. We all live as children of God and accept each other as that. Uh, in Paul's day, even a slave or a, a senator in the Roman Senate all had to be treated the same in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's where the great leveling is uh, to the Christian. Inside these walls and inside the body of Christ, we understand that we're all children of God on equal footing. Because we're all children of Adam, and we're all forgiven the same way as children of God. And praise the Lord for that. Okay, I'm in a little bit over time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, allowing us to think of these things again today and looking at the history uh, in Genesis that we have, that where we all came from, and even uh, thanking you for forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ and giving us uh, that great status as children of God. May we be busy about finding uh, those people who would hear the gospel and uh, become uh, sons of God with us and be blessed along with us. And we'll thank you for that. And all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here today.